ഹമ്മദുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹുഹു
I will be talking about theology, I will be talking about practice, and I am going to actually very loosely structure this. And I want all of you to ask me your questions. So I will tell you right now that the very first thing I want you to do in the break that we have, and that's why the first break is half an hour, there is actually no food for you in that time, right? And not that one, there will be later inshallah. I want you to write down any and every one of you should write down any and every question you ever had or have or heard from someone else about the sawuf, tariqat, saluk, sulsula, shaykh, bayat, nakshbandi, chitti, tazkiyah, purification, islah, rectification, anything in this whole realm. I prefer that you would write your name on that so I could know. But if there's some question you would like to write anonymously, you can put that in a separate paper. But those that you are comfortable, and you should be now comfortable enough with me. Because, you know, for example, when we are a professor at university, the students ask this question, we know who they are. And it's important, it's part of the answering process to know who asked the question. When they come in our office hours, we know who they are. When they write us an email, we know who they are. Yes, it can be an exceptional case, and we allow that. If for some reason somebody wants to ask something anonymously. Same for the women also, because sometimes it may be a question might be different, or the answer might have to be tailored as the woman asking, she's Norwegian, she's Pakistani, she's Finnish, she's one of the older students asking, then I will understand, I will actually understand the question better, because I will know maybe where she's coming from, because she's heard earlier talks. But if it's a newer student asking that, then I realize, okay, they haven't heard the earlier talks. They're asking this in a different way. All right? So that's a very important thing for me. I have my own feeling about what I want to talk to you about. But I also want, in the very first break, you should also write down all the things you would wish me to talk about. And if you have no situation, no such question, and you just want to see, that's also fine. It's not necessary to write any question. All right? It was a very vast topic, and we will begin with Alright? At some times in this, I will refer you to some of the talks on the website. I will maybe say something for a few sentences and say you can hear this more on the website so that I can move forward and try to share some things that maybe not be on the website. Alright? The first thing we must understand about our entire deen, every branch of deen, every aspect of deen, every ayah of Qur'an al-Kareem, Every hadith of Nabi Akrim came for one primary purpose is to make us closer to Allah Taala and to make us pleasing to Allah Taala. So that's some special thing about the branch called the Sawaf. Every single thing about Deen actually has elements of what people call the Sawaf in it. Everything is Zikr. Everything is to remember Allah Taala. Everything is Qurb. Everything brings a person closer to Allah Taala. Everything is seeking Allah Ta'ala's rida. Everything is about getting the pleasure of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And constantly, in everything, we have our nafs. And in every sphere of deen, every effort of deen, the nafs is an obstacle. And in every sense, we have to do tazkiyah of our nafs. We must purify and discipline our nafs. And the centrality of this is best understood and this I will explain briefly because we have explained this in detail on the website that Allah SWT in Qur'an mentioned that He sent Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and gave him some mission يَتْنُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّهِمْ وَيُعَلَّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ Four functions of Nabuwa Again, we have explained this more detail on the site Number one, to recite to them the verses of Revelation so that also means Qur'an al-Kareem is central to everything. And I will just insert something now. That's why it's very important in our understanding of the Sawaf. Yes, we must benefit from the writings and teachings of the Mishayat of Tariqat. But we cannot do that to such an exclusive way that we don't even know what is in Qur'an about certain things. That we don't even have ayat. Because that is also one example of some extreme that some people went to. That all they do is they sit and they only read the books of the shuyukh and comment on that and then don't even mention any verse of Qur'an in their entire talk. But that's not possible. The Qur'an al-Kareem must be central and to every single effort. Right? So that was the first thing. First mission that Allah Ta'ala gave Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yitnu alayhim ayat to recite to them the verses of Revelation. Second was, وَيُزَكِّهِمْ 
Now that they have that knowledge of Quran, what is Tazkiyah? Tazkiyah means, and I was saying to you in a new way perhaps today, means you should help them imbibe Quran. A bit of fancy English term means you should implant that Quran in their heart. So when you recite it, they heard it with their ears. And if you remember yesterday, this is something that was spontaneous mentioned Quran. Adhanun yasma'una biha. That they heard it with their ears. They understand it with their mind. They believe it in terms of their aqidah. And Tazkiyas now put it in their heart and put it in their life. And that's what really Tazkiyah is. To feel and live being. That is purity. Purity isn't that, okay, I can fly in the air or I see dreams of the past you. Those are incidental things that happen. Like in a plane journey, maybe there's some turbulence. Maybe you look out the window and you see a beautiful mountain. But that's not why you took the journey. You took the journey to get to the destination. Hmm? So the destination is taqwa. The destination is sharia. The destination is deen. But yes, sometimes some things happen along the way. But that's not the purpose. Alright? So to live deen and to feel deen. That is called purity. So somebody else says, what, is that? what does it mean to be pure? Hmm? But that means to be your heart is pure when it feels all the feelings of deen. Your life is pure when your life is lived entirely according to deen. Your mind is pure when all of your thoughts are according to deen. That's called purity. So that means impurity isn't just sin. Impurity is also ghafla. There are two things. One is sin, called ism, zamb in Quran al-Kareem in Arabic, and one is ghafla. So for example, if you're sitting and you're reading a long novel, and tell people do that, and I know there may be some people at introductory stage of Islam, the Muhammad at least we left the haram recreation, haram entertainment. And now maybe we read magazine or read book, right? Okay, so that's one level. But then you have to think that, okay, what if I had read something better? Could I have used my time better? Somebody says, okay, I watched soccer match for four hours. Strictly speaking, it might not be haram, right? But the question is, that could you have done something better? So another aspect of tazkiyah is it's constant. You keep trying to become better. And the way we can understand that is from Surah Al-Fatiha. Allah SWT asked us, told us rather, to ask Him to make dua to Him for Hidayah. Guide me on a sirat, a path. So you see, once you step on the path, you keep walking. The path means journey. Path means travel. It's not a station. It's not a point that you arrive at. A sirat means you keep moving. Asirat means Allah is teaching us in Surah Al-Fatiha that deen means you keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Maybe I moved out from music, TV and movies and I moved to soccer and novels and magazines. Keep moving. I move out from soccer, novel and magazines to light Islamic reading. Keep moving. I move out from light Islamic reading to more intense study of ill. Keep moving. Maybe I started some light zikr that I do while walking around. Keep moving. Now sometimes I sit and I do zikr more properly, with more focus. Keep moving. Now I try to do zikr for longer. Keep moving. Astirat, astirat, astirat. Keep moving, keep striving, keep trying to become better. Keep trying to become better in your deen. Tazkiyah goes on all the way until we die. Okay, now go back to the first one. Same thing about Quran al-Karim. There is no stage that comes in the believer. That he is beyond Qur'an al-Karim. That, okay, now I finished my learning tajweed and how to recite. Okay, I recited Qur'an al-Karim once in Arabic. Okay, I understood the translation once. Okay, maybe I did Qur'an tafsir course and did the tafsir once. Keep going. Asrat. Keep going. Keep going deeper in your recitation. Deeper in your memorization. Deeper in your understanding. Deeper in your feeling. You have to keep going. It doesn't end. Yes, sometimes we might go slow because there are many other things going on in our life. Sometimes we might go slow because we're busy in earning or busy with children or there's some difficulty or we're sick or we're traveling. Sometimes we might even stop. Hmm? Sometimes we might even stop. But when we stop, we don't exit the path. When we stop, we realize there's still more to go. There's still more effort we could make. 
The only time we really stop is called maut. Hmm? Like Allah SWT said in Quran that keep making ibadah, keep making ibadah until yakin comes upon you. Now in that, some of us say that yakin means maut. Alright? And the third function of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Allah Ta'ala mentioned in the Quran يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابِ So that I did for you that the apostles will teach Quran al-Kareem. That means the greatest depth is in Quran. More deep than the Masnavi of Malana Rum Ram Ta'ala. More deep than the writings of Shaykh Ashraf Ali Thanvi Ram Ta'ala. More deep than the Muktubat of Imam Rabbani Ram Ta'ala. The most, more deep than the sayings of Shaykh Ahmad Qadr Jain The deepest thing is Quran al-Kareem. Now yes, when we read the works of those shayukh, it helps us reach those depths. And we should read those works with this niyyah to get more deep in Quran and more in Tazkiyah. We shouldn't view these as separate things. Because that's another sometimes mistake people make in Tazawaf. That over time, when, and this is a very ironic tragedy, as they actually get stronger in their deen, and they get further in their Tazawaf, they start having less ta'luk with Qur'an. Very strange. <laughs> and before they were reading maybe Qur'an for 20 minutes and Masnavi of Rumi for 20 minutes. But now because they, because in some sense, especially for a person who doesn't know Arabic, and then cannot access the fear, maybe they found more information, more enlightenment in the works of the few. So that is fine initially. But as you go further, you know that your destination should be, I must make my relationship with Qur'an in such a way that ultimately, it might take me years to do this, but ultimately the Qur'an al-Kareem will be as inspirational and then even more inspirational to me than the words of any of the Messiah. But I may need the words of the Messiah to bring me to that level. You understand? Alright? al-kitab. Hmm? And that's why you will see the great Sufiya Arafin. They used to go deep into tafsir. They had this themselves. They were deep. They were called Arafin of Quran. One is Alim of Quran. One is Arif of Quran. So Alim means they know what we call classical scholastic tafsir. And Arif. Arif was that person who understood deep meanings and spiritual subtleties. Like there's one tafsir that I'm very fond of. And that Mufassir, he has a heading. He calls it Lataif Ma'arif. So first he has the whole scholastic academic tafsir, mentions hadith, law, language, linguistics, <laughs> all of that. Then he puts a second heading, Lata'if wa Ma'arif. Allah Akbar. And then he brings out ajeeb, kareeb, deep insights from Quran al hmm? And this was considered some of the greatest works. Alright? And then finally, Sayyidina Rasul, Allah SWT said in Quran to Sayyidina Rasulullah, He sallallahu alayhi wa al-hikmata. So it means, the verb is there as well, يُعَلِّمُهُمْ hikmah That you have to teach them hikmah. So hikmah is sunnah, but it's, an, it's a way to express sunnah that is more than just hadith. So the word hadith is basically trying to capture what we call riwayah, transmission of the textual reports about the sayings or actions or what we call taqreerat, silent tacit approval of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. Hikmah means to understand that sunnah, to live that sunnah, to feel that sunnah, to appreciate the wisdom and beauty. To be able to feel the brilliance and beauty and nobility and virtue and excellence and wisdom of the life of Nabi Akareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's called hikmah. So to know the sunnah, to live the sunnah, to love the sunnah, to celebrate the sunnah, to understand that the sunnah is the most beauty, the most virtue, the most excellence, that's called hikmah. For example, in non-religious systems, when they would call a person a wise man, hmm? so they say there's a wise old man, and we will go to him and he will maybe settle our dispute. Right? What does they mean? They meant that that person has a wisdom that he always decides on that wisdom. He always abides by that wisdom. He always lives by that wisdom. Everything in his life is guided by that wisdom. So they use the word hikmah for that. 
So to take sunnah up to that level of making it hikmah, Allahu Akbar Kabira. So to become a true ummati of Nabi Akrim So now I just told you one ayah. But that's all of this is called tasawwuf. Tasawwuf and tazkiyah is nothing other than understanding the spiritual, practical implementation of all of the knowledge and teachings of Quran and Sunnah. Alright? So there's one aspect of what we would call the theory. I will come back. I'm going to keep jumping from theory to history to practice to theory to history to practice. Alright? Okay. History. The first history is obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doing tazkiyah of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now the reality of that is beyond anybody's knowledge. Hmm? But all of us know that Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the most virtuous, perfect human being. The greatest of the prophets, Sayyid al-Awwaleen wal-Akhireen, Imam al-Anbiya wal-Mursaleen, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What we need to look at then in our history is what is really first for us is how Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did tazkiyah of Sahaba Ikram radiyallahu ta'ala anhumajmahin. Right? And again, if we don't know our seerah, we don't know the sunnah, we don't know the hadith, no doubt the Messiah have that knowledge and sometimes they extract nuggets for us. So we begin there and we do that and we will keep doing that. What is that? We will give you a topical lecture, what we call bayan, like last night we spoke about anger. So it's not going to be just that we read hadith after hadith after hadith on the topic. You need that presentation. You need that connection between verses and ayat. And that is the way to learn. But ultimately, what we're after is to try to understand the hadith and sunnah from the perspective of purification. Unfortunately now, there's so much effort spent in trying to understand hadith and sunnah from the perspective of law and fiqh. Whereas that was the duty of the ulama and the fuqaha. But for the average person, average person, they should have put that same, the same effort that the ulama and fuqaha scholars and jurists put in trying to understand the legal ahkam, the legal rulings from the hadith. The ordinary person should have put that same amount of effort in trying to understand the practical spiritual teachings. Right? That's the effort of the awam. So that is an activity. An ilmi, a knowledge-based activity of the ordinary people. Okay? Then you move further in history. So Sayyidina Rasulullah, he some passes away. Right? Because obviously in the age of Nabuwa, it's very clear all deen comes from the Prophet There's no question of analyzing or speculating or... Right? Then Sahaba Sahaba also had a kind of, if you will, absolute authority with the Tabin. But that the Tabin would take all their deen from Sahaba Ikram. There was no question from them that what could be the source of deen, or where do we learn our deen, or who do we trust in deen. There was no such question at that time. All Tabin had all trust in all Sahaba. All Sahaba had all authority over all Tabin. So no question then. Again, easy bit in history. Move to the next generation, that's when it begins. When you talk about the Tabi'in, now no doubt Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has mentioned hadith, Khairul Kuruni Karni, that the best of generations was my generation, Yani the Sahaba around the generation that has Sahaba with him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Summa ladina yilunahum, then those who followed them, Yani Tabi'in, and then after that, the Tabai Tabin. Right? But, unlike Sahaba, where all Sahaba were Muttaqeen, Oliya, all Sahaba had all authority. All Sahaba, we have all trust. All of the Tabin aren't like that. Actually, we don't know our history well, but by the time of the Tabin, you're talking millions of people that have entered Islam. So what the Prophet hadith means is that the Salihin of the Tabin are the next best people after Sahaba, and after them is the Salihin Muttaqin of the Tabai Tabin. Not all Tabin. So what it means is, to explain more simply, that in the time of Tabin, then this question arose. 
that who do we trust? Who has the authority? Who do we take our deen from? Because not every tabi was worthy of that. Okay? If you know a bit of your political history, there were a lot of even corrupt rulers in the time of the tabi'in. There was a lot of problem in the time of tabi'in. Alright? So, but still, that group of tabi'in who were ulama, who were fuqaha, who were the earliest muhaddisin, who were the muttaqin awliya, the society knew it wasn't a hidden thing. And at least, alhamdulillah, with the Ahmad Sunnah al Jama'ah, you know, with the Sunnis, it was clear. There was no dispute at all about different methods and different ways. And is this bidah, is this not bidah? These questions don't come at that generation. So there was a publicly recognized and known and accepted large number of tabin who people had, again, absolute trust in, and they gave them authority over them in all of their matters and affairs in the Alright? And then again, this continued in the time of the Tabai Tabi. Then as you continue in history, then sometimes you, at some point, and you can't pinpoint this, but in history, then things get a bit uncertain. And then if you fast forward all the way till today, so the Muslim today, or the new Muslim today, sometimes they don't know in whom should I put my trust? Whom can have authority over me? Because there's so many different views and so many different perspectives. Alright? So this is one aspect of the history. Second aspect of history is now let's look, let's go now backward from the contemporary time and look at this actual formal thing which is called tasawwuf. Alright? Now in time of Sahaba Ikram you cannot find this word tasawwuf, suluk, tariqat. In time of Tabin, you cannot find it. In time of Tabai Tabin, you can't find it. Reason is, is that they did not need this name. They had the reality, right? For example, in early times, the ulama used to sit, but they didn't use the word seminar, workshop, conference, jalsa. They had the reality that they were, people were getting suhbah, they were talim, ta'allum, tazkiyah, tarbiyah, there was knowledge, education, right? But they didn't have any need to use names to describe that activity, alright? So the reality and activity of the Tawul Suluk was there, which is what we call Tazkiyah, right? But they didn't need a name to describe that activity. In the time of the Tabai Tabin, you have the first historical instance of the use of a particular name to describe all of this activity. And that name or that word is called Zuhud. Zuhud. And some of the muhaddisin from the Tabai Tabin, Abdullah ibn Barakrimullah, Abdullah ibn Ahmad ibn Hanbalrimullah, they compiled hadith and sayings of Sahaba and sayings of Tabin. And they made little risala, which they, a little treatise, booklet, short book, which they call Kitab al Zuhd. Now, one very thing we learned from that, I repeat, it wasn't just Quran and hadith, also sayings of Sahaba or sayings about Sahaba, or mention of their practice, sayings of the Tabin or about the Tabin or mention of their practice. So right in the time of Tabai Tabin, you can say in a sense, well, how would we explain it in English, is you had the beginning or the origin of a concept of tradition. That there's the Qur'an, there's the Prophet and then there's our tradition. So for the Tabai Tabin, their tradition was what the Sahaba said and did, and what the Tabin said and did. That was their tradition. So they needed, they felt we must also learn from our tradition to understand Zod. Zod, and that's something we've explained in more detail on the website, so I'll just do briefly. Zod means to live your life in this world without desiring the dunya. To live a life in the dunya without being affected by dunya. These are two aspects of dhawad. That you do not desire it, and you are not affected by it. This is just a very simple initial definition of dhawad. Now, because I'm doing it more in the history part, why did they feel the need to do this? Because they felt that sometimes, in our, alhamdulillah, perfect, great being, sometimes amongst the people, there is a certain gap a weakness. 
And to remove that weakness, we need to make some special dedicated effort. Like even, in fact, the ulama and historians write about what was the origins of Arabic grammar. Because Sayyidina Rasulullah did not formally teach Sahabah Ikram now. Grammar. So some say it was Sayyidina Ali, they have different things. But basically the origin was that somebody read the Qur'an incorrectly. And they realized that okay, if he reads the Qur'an incorrectly, obviously he will understand the wrong meaning. So in order to now deal with this weakness, or maybe because people like us, they were not Arabs, so they couldn't read naturally. So then the ulama began compiling the science of grammar, ilmun nahu, so that it could be taught to people to take care of this weakness. Same thing, ilmun tajweed. Sahabah Kram did not teach tabin the type of tajweed the way me and you learn it. But as people entered Islam without being able to recite, so they made this learning, ilmun tajweed. Then the same thing in the time of the tabai tabin, when they saw that people were not Mm. being able to protect themselves from dunya. And again, if you go back in history, at the time of Taba Tabin, Islam was Ghalib. This was the spread of Islamic civilization. This was the time of the downfall of the Byzantine and Roman Empire, the downfall of the Persian Empire. Islam basically then became the, not just superpower, but expanding superpower. And that would continue for centuries. Allah Akbar. So they felt a need that we must now have a special effort and discipline called Zohar. Alright? Then basically then you continue in history it's that field of Zohar that later then became called the Tasawwuf, became called Tariqat, became called Fluk. Alright? Okay, the rest of that early history we have actually explained also uh, in other talks on the website. I'm going to fast forward in history. What happened was, as this continued, and because all of you would know that stuff, that then basically... Okay, I'll do it for you briefly. What happened was, in after the time of the Taba'i Tabin, then Zuhud was taught by personalities. So there were certain individuals who became known for their Taqwa and Zuhud. Like Bishr al-Hafi, <coughs> Junaid Baghdadi, Okay? Alright? So, and people then just went to those personalities. It was that simple. Then what happened as those personalities started teaching this, then some of their students also started becoming proficient. So you move from a person to a group. Alright? And then that group would be called a tariqa. Now, tariqat means simply a path, like sirat, like a way, so a method of purification. Like you could say that there are seven turuk or ways of kirat, like haf. You want to rest? Okay, yeah, you can sit on the chair. If you want to sit on the chair, you can sit on the chair. So, haf recitation, varsh recitation, right? Again, those were individuals first who were narrating those methods of recitation, but then they became groups of people who were reciting in that method. So it became a way of kiraat. Just like that, then they became groups of people who followed the method of tazkiyah, so that became known as a tariqat. Hmm? Okay? Alright. Then another thing happened. That these great personalities because there were Muttaqeen, Salih, there were also Awliyaullah. So what happens throughout human history is sometimes people start to slightly exaggerate the person. Sometimes that happens in the person's lifetime. Alhamdulillah, see, for the early period that didn't really happen so much. But then sometimes it happens after the lifetime. Now, so it's easy to understand because if we look at human history, this is what human beings do with Anbiya. Isa came, not in his lifetime, but after he passed away, people started exaggerating. He's son of God, that he's Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost, hmm? that they make statue of him in every church. So they started exaggerating. Hmm? And in fact, this has happened with so many Anbiya in the past, right? So, if it could happen with Anbiya in the past, obviously it could also has happened also with Oliya in the past. 
So then there were some people, not everyone, not the majority, but then you had this slight, if you will, departure, that rather than focusing on the teachings and the taqwa and the tazkiyah of that personality, they started focusing just on the personality themselves. Maybe some karamat, some miracles, something extraordinary that happened to that person in their life. So rather than telling people that Jinnir Baghdad he taught us to love Allah Ta'ala like this, and you should also love Allah Ta'ala like that. Instead they would say, Jinnir Baghdadi had this extraordinary thing happen to him, and this extraordinary thing happened to him, and then those people just kept over one, two, three generations, increasing just that narration and that transmission. Alright? So then that led to some type of departure. Okay? So then they were, Allah Ta'ala always, it's a Hassan Hadith. Hassan means completely authentic as far as knowledge goes, but just a slight technical matter for the Muhaddithi. I'll give you an example. If there's a doctor who, when he takes his certifying exam, he gets an A, and there's another doctor who gets an A-. As far as me and you are concerned, he's a doctor. There's no difference between the A and the A-minus doctor. As far as the medical board record goes, yes, this one has an A, has an A-minus. So, Hassan Hadith, as far as we are concerned, is a very important thing to know. Hassan, I'm not talking life. Hassan Hadith is as important, as strong as Sahih Hadith for all ilm, for all people. But as far as the Muhaddisin go, yes, they have this tag on it that it's Hassan, it's not Sahih. In fact, Imam Tirmidhi Rumatana. I'm going. <laughs> lack of structure has a barakah and has a Imam at Tirmidhi he actually, to make this clear to people, sometimes in his compilation, his jame, his compilation of hadith, he would write hadith on Hasanun Sahihun. So a person would know that you don't just think. And there are many other views Madrasin have about why he used this term. Yeah. Alright? Hasan hadith of Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is that every century. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise a person from the ummah at or around the turn of the century who will do tajdeed of the deen, who will be a mujaddid, who will renew and revive the deen. Now, what is the one thing that we learn from this? It's a way of understanding history. That our Prophet is teaching us that this is going to happen. As history unfolds, there will be some departures. There will be some things in the deen that die out, that fade out, fade out. There will be some things that are maybe incorrect. And Allah subhanahu wa will be monitoring that process and He will raise somebody every century to do to be the deen, to revive the deen. So because it's, we know this from our knowledge, from the sunnah. So definitely this happened. So there were times when there were certain departures. So one very important example of that is Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullahu ta'ala who according to the vast majority of ulama was the mujaddid of Iyani, which you would call the 6th Islamic century, right? Okay? You would call 6th Islamic century, you mean at the turn of 500. Okay? Now, what did he do? Now that's, again, we have a lot of detail on this also on the website because Alhamdulillah we gave a lot of courses and lectures on Imam al-Nazal and he did many things. One of the things he did is he brought the Sawwuf back into the mainstream. Even before that, I would say, he brought the Sawwuf back to the ulama. Because and the, normally people don't emphasize that aspect of Imam al-Ghazal. What happened was in his time, he noticed two things in the ulama. One was that he thought that a lot of ulama were just in worship of dunya that they just wanted to be kazi and get big posts and get big salary and get gifts and be treated like royalty by the king. They wanted to be imam of the jami masjid because again now, imam of the was in Baghdad. You're talking about Baghdad in the 5th, 6th century, which is the heart and the cradle of Islamic civilization. And in that time, Islamic civilization was the... This is the time when Europe was in the Dark Ages. You Norwegians and Finlands were Vikings. Huh? <laughs> no, no offense. I'm just teasing. Right? Uh, okay? Right? And Baghdad, Allah Akbar. Baghdad was a literary, philosophical, economic, a Jewish capital of the world. Hmm? Allah Akbar. But Imam Ghazayimata saw that this is spoiling the ulama. They're enjoying being the 
Qadi al-Qudat, Chief Justice, and big alim, and big masjid. Hmm? So the first thing he did is brought the Thawaf back for them. Remember Zuhud, the same way that the Tabai Tabin did. Hmm? And the second thing he did is brought the Thawaf for people. So he wrote these books so that everybody could access this Thawaf. Allahu Akbar. So he was a Mujaddid. And if you look at his books, like Ihyal and especially, which was he also felt, not just that we feel that it was his greatest work, he also felt, it was a very important thing, if such a big alim and sheikh and imam and mujaddid feels that this is my most important work, so that means that it must be the work of tajdeed. You won't find hardly, hardly mention of miracles and things like that. You would find things about how to change your life, how to change your heart, how to change your soul. Real tasqiyatun nafs, islahun nafs. That's what you will find in Ihalamuddin. There was a third thing that Imam Ghazali tried to do, and sometimes because he tried to do all three together, today when somebody reads the English translation, you might get a bit thrown off. The third thing he tried to do was he tried to work on the intellectuals. So the ulama, the masses, and the intellectuals. who weren't ulama, right? And the problem with them was that the intellectuals had gotten too much into Ibn Sina and early Greek philosophy. So sometimes to bring them also closer onto the path of Tasawwuf, he would explain Tasawwuf in a bit of a philosophical way. He wasn't doing that because he thought it needs to be philosophical. He was trying to reach out to those people, right? So sometimes when you read it 900 years later, it can maybe be a bit confusing. With the ulama, I forgot, I was saying the ulama had two problems. One was that they were caught in dunya. The second was they were trying to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not through zikr and ibadah, but through a field known as ilmul kalam. Ilmul kalam in fancy English they call it dialectical theology. And Imam Zahir felt that no, this is not the best way to do it. You need to do it to make sure the aqaid of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah are strong and to refute the false aqaid of Mu'tazila, etc., etc. But once that is done, your own understanding as an alim or even as a Muslim of Allah Ta'ala should be based on the soul. So sometimes he's also addressing that issue in his works. Okay. Then Imam Ghazali passes away like every human will and always has. Then you would have everything. I mean, this is something sort of a bit after Imam Ghazali. Part it has started at the time Imam Ghazali and then it happens it starts to formalize later is along with this, a bit before Imam Ghazali, a century or so before and continuing onward, you have more formal structures of tariqat. So then eventually you have now something called Qadri Sulsala, then there will be something called Surawardi Sulsala, then Nakshimali Sulsala, Chisti Sulsala, Shadi Sulsala, right? These things start. Okay. When these things started, again, first everything was fine, and then there were a few departures. Then there was a person who came, his name was Ibn Taymiyyah But Ibn Taymiyyah was unlike Imam Ghazali. But Ibn Taymiyyah he didn't do tajdeed. What he did was correction. But the problem he, is that he overcorrected. And sometimes humans do that. And so the ulama do that also. That if you see a problem, you can imagine like a doctor. So there is cancer in one part. So the expert surgeon only cuts out that part that has the cancer. Right? That's the mujaddid. Like Imam al He only cut out that part of philosophy that had cancer. He cut only that part of kalam that had cancer. He left everything else there. The person who overcorrects, he cuts out the part that has cancer, but he cuts out more also. Because he wasn't such a professional. Right? So Ibn Taymiyyah Rimullah Alhamdulillah, his niyyah was good. He saw some problems. And those problems did need to be corrected. But he overcorrected. So he took out, he spoke against some of the things that were wrong. But then he even spoke against, remember that surgical removal? He even spoke against some of the things that were okay. Hmm? And this is something, and this is a lesson, and those of you who know your history would know this, that any time you have overcorrection, it's very hard to undo that overcorrection. 
And that's the hardest thing. If you sit with somebody today and you try to explain to them that even they don't, they believe in Ibn Taymiyyah's overcorrections. Just like the surgery, one, you can't undo that. <laughs> Once the surgeon and the oh, you took out more than you should have. It's done now. You can't undo it. <laughs> he over-medicated. This is the term. Doctors over-medicate. Mm, they over-prescribe. Right? So this is what happened. Ibn Taymiyyah was a doctor. And he was sincere. And he was muttaqi and salih. And Allah Ta'ala may Allah grant him genital for those. But he overcorrected. Alright? <coughs> but it's important for us to understand why did he overcorrect? Because there were some problems. Alright? And because some of the problems were so serious, you can understand from a human level why somebody would overcorrect. Right? Now, the other problem with overcorrection is then that leads to a backlash. So, the again, the ironic tragedy is after Ibn Taymiyyah, some Sufis, now, and I'm not using that term in a positive term, some Sufis reacted against this overcorrection. And they tried to bring back some of the things, so they should bring back what was right, so recorrect, but they also over-recorrected, and they brought back some of the cancer. Hello, Akbar. Ajib. And then you can say that is the history all the way up to today. Okay? Allah Akbar Kabira. Ajib. It's very dangerous. And obviously, Allah Subhanahu has sent Mujaddid every century, but we don't always know with so much clarity. Like Umar bin Abdul Aziz, you can say actually Ijma' that he was the Yani Mujaddid of the hundred turning of the hundred Hijri, Yani what we call second Islamic century, right? Uh, Imam Mahzajim tells near Ijma, 99% Ijma. Later, then it gets a little bit less sure, less certain. Okay. And then there was another person. His name was Imam Rabbani. And Mujaddad al-Fisani, it doesn't mean that he was Mujaddad of the second millennium. Because the Hadith says you're Mujaddad for one century. But he happened to be the Mujaddad for that century, which happened to be 1000 AH, the turning of that. Okay? But it's the incorrect. There's also some people, okay, I will mention another word too. It's called Ghulu. Ghulu means that you take a correct concept, but you take it too far. It's not an incorrect concept. It's not a departure, not a deviation, not a bidah. It's the correct concept, but it's taken too far. That's called ghulu. Or it's the correct practice, but it's elevated to a level which it doesn't have. That's called ghulu, right? So some people do this with Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Ramtanai. They said he's mujaddid for the whole millennium. No, no, that's not Paul. Hadith is that mujaddid is for one century. Okay? All right. Imam Rabari was living in a time, like I told you, after Ibn Taymiyyah, certain Sufis did a backlash, and they did even more. And then there was a second thing, because he lived in India, so there were some Muslims in India who were affected by some of the local Hindu cultural practices. And the same thing happened in Indonesia and Malaysia, same thing happened in African countries. So sometimes Muslims, in a sweet way, get affected by local religious practices. This happened before Ibn Taymiyyah, before Imam Ghazali, and even between Imam Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah, that they were affected by Christian practices. There were some people of Tathawaf who were affected by Christian monks. And what happened is when they would meet the monks, they would know that La Habaniyat of Islam, you shouldn't be a monk in Islam. But they were at a human level touched and impressed. Now look at this monk, he's, you know, worshipping all day. He has this big tasbih. They have these rosary beads. And he's just sitting and making invocations and zikr. So they were touched. They said, if he's like that, and I'm Muslim, I'm on Haq, I'm on the Trudin, so I should be better than him. Right? Sometimes that also led to people being a little bit astray. So whether it's Christian monks, whether it was Hindu ascetics, whether it was native African religion, or native Indonesian, Southeast Asian religion, sometimes in a sincere way, people of Sufism would see other people's ibadat, and they would try somehow to match it or exceed it. Alright? So always remember, and that is why we have to remember this verse. لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا We don't need to see the Christian monk may be incredible, but I don't need to look at him. 
I have the sunnah of my beloved messenger Yes, I could look to this extent But see, it's very Sometimes, okay, I just I'm going to show you something But I can look to this extent that Okay, yes, he is, seems to be more better character than me He seems to be a softer, gentler person than me Right? And I should be ashamed that I am from Ummah of Sayyidina Rasulullah hmm? But beyond that You shouldn't look Right? Uh, and it's hard to control human emotions that's another thing, it's hard on your own, and this is one of the one of the areas why it is important to have a shaykh, it's hard on your own to assess the balance, right? Am I getting too far? Am I being too affected? Am I being too emotional? Sometimes we can't tell this on our own. And a person can be sincere, but their emotions can get the better of them. So what had happened in Shaykh and Mr. Hindi Imam Rabbani's time? was that there were some mashayikh, even mashayikh, even there were muttaqeen salihin mashayikh. It's not that their bidat means they're totally off people. They were nice, good, mukhlis, muttaqeen, salih mashayikh. At that time, and I'm talking about today, at that time, but they got a little bit affected by some of the Hindu religious culture and practices. And then, their next generation got more affected and then their next generation got more affected and basically this was going on for about one or two hundred years before Sheikh Amr Hindi was born alright and then when he was born things had gone too far and this is also something that we've explained in more detail on the website but part of it also had to do with the Mughal ruler at that time his name was Akbar and he made his own deen <coughs> First he called it Deen-e Akbari Allahu Akbar Like this Deen-e Islam And he called it Deen-e Akbari And then he changed the name He called it Deen-e Ilahi Which is even worse And in that Deen you can make Sajda And not just can You should make Sajda to Akbar The king Just to give you one of many examples In that Deen a Muslim girl could marry Hindu boy Mushrik just to give you so one from the realm of ibadat and one from the realm of interpersonal relations, you can understand this huge problem, huge problems. So then Allah Ta'ala raised this wali of Allah Ta'ala, Imam al-Abani Shaykh and Alhamdulillah in his lifetime, he was able to push back, roll back the entire Dina Akbari, and he was able to <coughs> purify the soul of the different wrong concepts and wrong practices that had come in his time. Right. Then what happens is that as you move further away from any true historical personality, sometimes it gets harder to identify what their real authentic teachings were. So for example, as we move further away in time from Sheikh Abdul Qadir it's harder to find a true Qadri. As you move further in time from the time from Khajamid and Chishnam Tanai, it's harder to find a true Chishti. Right? So, this is also one of the things that Allah Ta'ala would bless the Ummah with revival, that because these people were blessed, like Imam Unifa, Imam Malik were blessed from the Fuqaha, Yeni Makbul, Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim were blessed from the Muhaddatin, these people were blessed from the Uliyaullah. So, from time to time, Allah Ta'ala would enable someone to renew and restore it back to the proper teachings. So as an example for that, Imam al-Bani Hindi was blessed by Allah to restore Naqshabandi and Jishti and Qadri and Surawardi teachings in India back to the original form, free of deviation and free of departure and free of error. So it wasn't just for the sake of Naqshabandi Sultanah, for all of the Sosla that were present in India, Jishti Sosla, Kukali Sosla, Surawardi Sosla, he was able to bring all of them back, Alhamdulillah, to proper. So that's why Imam al and then moving forward 500 years, 5 centuries, Shaykh Ambassador Hindi in particular are the Mujaddids of Tasawwuf. The Mujaddids of Tasawwuf. Because Mujaddid can be in different fields, right? Like Umar bin Abdulaziz, of the Ummah basically, actually. the whole Ummah, everything. Okay, all right. 
I'm almost done with this first part. I'm trying to remember. I told you 12.40, right? Because I knew we were going to start a bit late. It's tough, huh? Some of our brothers, they also traveled in the morning. You should have given them some rest before they, before you sat them down. Huh? Allah Akbar. All right. So the next thing is actually a very important thing, so I want you to perk up and listen. Then what happened is, and there are different things, all, I mean, there's so many things that were happening in the Arab world, and the Turkish world, and the Persian world, and Central Asian world, and Indian world, and Southeast Asian world, and African world. So many things were happening, right? The next major thing that happened in our history is colonialism. And colonialism affected everyone. Arab world, African world, Southeast Asian world, Indian world, Central Asian world, that's Russian colonialism. And that actually, people don't appreciate, that was the worst one. Whatever we may think about American and French and British and Italian and Portuguese and Dutch colonialism, Allah, you put all, combine all of that and you will not even come close to the zulm that the Russians did in Central Asia. It's the untold history. Allah Akbar Kabira. So anyway, the whole Muslim world was affected. Entire Muslim world was affected. Everything about the Muslim world was affected. Ulama were killed, madaris, and institutions of Islamic learning were either shut down or twisted into puppets of colonial regime like Al Azhar in Egypt, and they still never fully recovered from that, really, to be blunt. Alright. And obviously, when every single branch and area of deen took a hit, the Sogov also took a hit. Naturally, every branch of deen took a hit. So the Sogov also took a hit. Okay? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the real protector of deen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Hadi. He is the one who always gives hidayah. Hmm? So again, this is a long story about how, alhamdulillah, in all of these areas, all of them, whether Imam Shamil in Central Asia, whether Sheikh Uthman Danfodio and Sheikh Sanusi in Africa, hmm? or many other shiuch in different places, alhamdulillah, again brought about a renewal and restoration of the Sobh. Right? One very important place where this happened was in a place in North India. And there was a sheikh, his name was Haji Imdadullah, and then later he migrated to Makkah Makarma, where he lived the rest of his life. So he's known as Haji Imdadullah Mahajir Makirimalatana. Hmm? But in this instance, what happened? is what Allah SWT, from what we understand of history, because Allah knows best why and how He does things, we can only try to understand it. In this case, because the colonial effect was so strong and so deep and such a big fitna. Hmm? So this work, Allah Ta'ala did not just take from one person. Rather, Allah Ta'ala raised a group of people. A group of people. And some of them where from Nakshamandi Sultana, you look at Shah Wazirullah Mahadis Dehli Viramtane, his children, then Shah Rafiuddin Ramtai, who was the first Muhtamil of Dardam Deban, Mufti Zizur Rahman Ramtai, who was the first Mufti of Dardam Deban. So there were some Nakshamandi Mashaik who were also ulama, and then some Chishti Mashaik who were also ulama. So what happened in India, a group of Ulama Shayyuk arose. So they were very strong in ilm of tafsir, hadith, and fiqh. And they were very strong in tasawwuf. And particularly these two Sulsala Naqshabandi and Jifti Sulsala. And as a group combined collective effort, they were able, alhamdulillah, to restore tasawwuf and tasqiyah back, not just to its correct way. But they were able to use the Sawuf and Tazkiyah to bring about a revival of deen after the onslaught of communism. Allah Kabira. And Allah also accepted the same group because they were shayukh and ulama to bring about a revival of ilm of deen. 
which had taken a very big hit, like I told you, due to colonialism. Hmm? So this was a very special movement. And in sometimes it's just named after the town, which was Deoband, but it's much more than just a town. And these were people who had great uh, relations with the Syrian ulama, Egyptian ulama, Turkish <coughs> Ottoman Empire ulama of that time. In fact, when the Turks were also, Ottomans were trying to launch a Khalafa movement. The first place they turned to was this group of ulama in India, right? So it's not some Indian thing, this is an important thing to say. It was the Central Asia, Turkish, Arab, India, whole area. Because all of them were suffering and trying to roll back this colonial effort. But for our purposes, we want to look specifically about the, the Sof aspect of it. Alright? So that's something I will tell you more about in the second session. Okay? Uh, because then you will be more fresh after the break. And then I will... Because that's a very important thing I want you to understand. And that may be new for some of you. Alright? Um, but who that group of ulama and shiul, who they were, and what they managed to achieve and accomplish, and how me and you can benefit from their teachings and their writings and their practice and their legacy and their understanding. That's a major topic for this weekend. Alright? And that's something we will talk about in the second session. So before I end the first session, I did some of the history and theory, right? So I want to tell you a little bit about practice. Okay? Now the practice of the Savos is not only zikr. It is zikr, but it's not only zikr. Because this was also then a mistake that came with some people. That they thought that the Sov is just about zikr, or a certain type of clothing, right? Or a certain group identity, or a certain group mentality. And so this became another thing, that okay, Sufis basically became, okay, this group of Sufis. Why? Because they do this particular type of zikr, and they wear this type of clothing. Another group of Sufis, why is that a different group? Because they do a different type of zikr, they wear a different type of clothing. Third group of Sufis, why is that a third group? Because they wear a different type of zikr, different type of clothing. So it became just about zikr and clothing. Hmm? Right? Now no doubt, uh, there are different methods of zikr. No doubt, yes, people who follow one particular method of zikr will have an affinity, and that's a natural thing. Like if you follow one mother of fiqh, so that's a group affinity, group identity, that we take our masail, masail shari, legal rulings from one particular methodology. But it should not have been so much separation. Right? And then to add on to it, clothing or culture or region, this is also not something that is preferred in our deen. Right? Uh, in Arabic, this is called tashakhus. In Urdu, we say shaksiyat. Shamalajati, right? It means that it becomes too personality-based, or too culture-based, or too regional-based, and these things have to be watched and guarded against. Okay? At the same time, obviously, all ulama and are from some region, right? The Imam Muzari Ramatala was Irani, he was Persian, but living in Baghdad. Sheikh Abdul Qadijan, there was an Arab earlier than Imam Zayn, living in Baghdad, right? And this group of ulama that I will tell you more about, ulama, shiuch, shiuch, ulama, were living in British India, right? But it doesn't mean that the teachings that we will take from them is unique to Indians or Pakistanis or Bangladeshis, just like the teachings that we will take from Imam Ghazayran is only to be for the Iranians and Persians. Or the hadith that we learned from Imam Bukhari Rimullah is only for the Uzbeks and Central Asians, right? So you should never think that because some group of ulama and shiuk come from a particular region, that they should only be confined to that region. No, right? We must learn from all of the rightly guided ulama and shiuk, even if they're from a different region than ours. Alhamdulillah, I can tell you personally, I never have any problem in my life that almost all the works of fiqh that we studied in Arabic, none of them are from India, Pakistan region. No problem for me. They're all from the Arab world, Central Asia world, Persian world, right? Same thing when we read the books of Tafsir, same thing when we go through the compilations of Hadith, alright? So it should never be an issue of culture. Similarly, 
It's not an issue of convert or born Muslim. There's no such cultural difference in Islam. At a personal level, yes, obviously, somebody who's new to Islam, right, often gives a fresh perspective. And sometimes I think, you know, like uh, when a patient is sick, so they give them blood transfusion. They inject fresh blood. And sometimes I think because the Ummah is sick, and those of us who were born and raised Muslims, we have so many sicknesses in us. So Allah Ta'ala blesses us by giving us fresh blood transfusion of these, mashallah, Norwegian and Finnish and German, hmm? Allahu Akbar Kabira and others also who enter Islam. And you can see that historically also, when Ummah was sick, then got transfusion of Persian, then Turkish, then Central Asian, then African, then Indonesian, then Indian. Hmm? So it will continue. Alright? But when we are in, so there's no such thing like that. That this is the Sufism for the Indians, and this is the Sufism for the Arabs, and this is the Sufism for the Africans. There's nothing like that. Alright? We simply want to learn from whichever ulama and shayukh have the most mastery in that field and have the most relevance to us and who we have access to. If that means we take the seer from some early Arab text, we take hadith from some Central Asian text, we take fiqh from some medieval Persian text, we take the soul from some Indian chef, it's fine. Alright? So this is an important thing. That there's no role in culture, ethnicity, language when it comes to our learning and practicing our deen. As far as methods of, and this is something I will explain maybe in the third session, methods of zikr. Right? No doubt there are different methods of zikr, different practices of zikr. And overall, the Mashaikh have adopted two types of ways. One is what we would call set, structured, prescribed zikr, because that is also very beneficial. And then the second way is sometimes having a bit of loose, unstructured zikr. Right? And it's important to have both of them in their right proportion. If you're too rigid and too exclusive on the zikr that you do, then again that could lead to a little bit of separation, a little bit of divisions between people. And if you're too loose and too unstructured, then you won't be able to systematically use that zikr to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that will be something also we plan to cover in this weekend, inshallah, about the practices of zikr. Alright? I think we will take an early break right now and we'll ask Lukas to give the brothers if you can arrange some strong coffee. The Europeans, they drink coffee. Right? Allah Akbar. And I think maybe we give you roughly 20-25 minutes uh, and at 1 p.m. inshallah we will resume. Alright? So, even if you, for some of you, a 20-minute nap might be better. For some of you, coffee might be better. For some of you, you just need to go out in the cold, and that might be better. So, you pick one of these three things.